chapter number one. Just recently finished our series through the book of Malachi. And so you just turn a couple pages over and we have come to Matthew. So we're going to begin uh, a series through the gospel of Matthew. I have entitled uh, this series, Hail the Humble King, and this will be message number one in this series entitled Good News. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 17. I'm just going to read verse 1 here as we begin, but we'll be looking at verses 1 to 17 Uh, here in Matthew chapter 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So imagine being born into a family with a long, rich history that has centered around a particular expectation and all the joys and the sorrows of the family history was tied to this expectation. Now, this expected event was believed to be the the one thing that would change your entire family line forever for the better. And so your parents lived with that expectation, and your grandparents lived with that expectation, and your great-grandparents lived with that expectation, and your great-great-grandparents lived with that expectation. And I, I think you can see where I'm going with that. For generations and generations, going back way beyond the number of people that you could conceive of and keep in your head, all lived with this same expectation, looking for this same expected event. Now imagine how every generation of your family would wonder if they were the ones who would finally see this expectation realized. And then imagine what it would be like if the event finally happened and you missed it. You had waited your whole life, you'd centered your whole life around this, and when it finally happened, you didn't even know that it had happened. You missed it. Or maybe imagine that you were born into such a family, but you never bought into the whole expectation. You were skeptical. Could this even really be true? You figured, ah, it's just a bunch of old wives' tales and made-up wishes that have been kept alive by by some superstitious old fools. So you certainly weren't going to waste your life living for and looking for something that was never going to happen, especially since it hadn't happened for thousands of years. But then it did happen, or at least many believe that it happened. It seems like you would at least probably want to investigate and to see, what if it's true? What would it mean for your life? Now, of course, in all of this, I've tried to generally capture the situation for that generation of Israel that were living in the first century A.D. The scrolls of Moses and the scrolls of the prophets and the scrolls of the writings of wisdom had been preserved, and they preserved the history of Israel all the way back to the creation of the heaven and the earth. And so all the events and all the revelations and all the prophecies pertaining to Israel, the nations and the heavens and the earth, all of these things had been kept alive from generation to generation. And for many generations, the Jews had studied these sacred texts from all angles. 
And the rabbis have dissected these texts and discussed and debated the meaning of the words and and all of the methods and the speculations and the theories about what they meant had been going on for generations within the Jewish people. And so over time, different groups, different schools of thought had developed based around how they interpreted the scrolls of the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Old Testament. And so the Pharisees were Uh, a group that were the primary religious teachers by the first century A.D. They were popular with the people of Israel. They controlled the synagogues, which was the main teaching arm of Judaism um, in that time. They were purists and they were separatists. Their goal was to to separate and purify um, Israel. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were another primary group within Israel at the time, and they were the political leaders within Israel. They actually had some governmental power and authority. They were much more friendly with and accepting of the Greco-Roman culture of the nations around them. Then, of course, you had the scribes who were the professional copyists of the law, and they were the teachers of the law. Most of them were Pharisees, but not all of them. You have those who referred to as loggers that were scribal specialists viewed as high-level experts of the law. And, of course, you had the high priest and the chief priests who officiated the temple rites, and they held political power over Israel, and this was controlled by the Sadducees in the first century. You also have the Sanhedrin Council that was the highest court of justice in Israel at the time. The Sanhedrin council was controlled by the Sadducees, but the Pharisees also had a strong presence and influence in the council. Now, there were some other groups beside these. These are the primary groups. These are the primary groups that you're going to meet with as you go through the Gospel of Matthew. And there were some other smaller groups, but these were the dominant groups within the life of Israel in that first century. The Pharisees believed in a physical resurrection and a personal Messiah who would be a true son of David. So their effort was to separate Israel from the nations, to purify Israel in preparation for the Messiah, and they were scrupulous law and tradition keepers. They expected a political Messiah who would rule over a political kingdom after defeating Israel's enemies. They did not believe he would actually be God in the flesh, but sent from God. And he would be free from sin, and he would come with great signs in the heavens. That was generally their expectation, and generally the expectation of Judaism in that day. The Sadducees, on the other hand, did not believe in the Messiah as a person. They viewed the prophecies of the Messiah from the Old Testament to be more symbolic, and to be more spiritual, and to be more figurative, describing really more of just an ideal age or an ideal time for Israel in the future. They did not believe in a physical resurrection, so they were Platonists, no doubt from the, uh, much from the, the Greek influence of the time, who believed in a spiritual existence um, after life, but not, not a physical resurrection. They were much less concerned about the keeping of the rabbinical traditions They were much more concerned with an Israeli state through friendships with the dominant nations and cultures. Well, as time drew to a close, or close to this first century, it had been over 400 years 
since the last books of the Old Testament had been written, those being the books of Chronicles and Nehemiah and Malachi. No further revelation had been given. And if you read those books, one of the common features that you will find is that they all end with cliffhangers. They all end with with some, a partial return of some of, of Israel from Babylon to Jerusalem. They had rebuilt a temple. They had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They had a functional priesthood. We might really probably ought to refer to it as a dysfunctional priesthood uh, because it had a lot of problems, but they did have a a functioning priesthood, um, so to speak. And, And all of these things were there and were in place, but the Chronicles and Nehemiah and Malachi all all end essentially lamenting the state and the situation. This has not been the restoration of Israel that was prophesied beginning with Moses and the end of this exile by the arrival of the long-expected Messiah, these had not come. So all of these last books of the Old Testament end with, with an unfulfilled expectation for a coming Messiah and all that that was going to mean for Israel in the future. And this is, in fact, where the New Testament begins. Now, Matthew, the Gospel of of Matthew, is not the first book of the New Testament that was written in terms of just the chronology of when these books that make up the New Testament were written. Matthew was not the first book that was written. So when you turn to the New Testament, it's not in chronological order, really. Um, But but Matthew is um, standing at the beginning of the New Testament as we find it. And as far as Gospels go, Mark was written before Matthew, but Matthew is a very fitting book, actually, to begin this collection of books that we know of as the New Testament, that is the continuation and the completion of the Old Testament. It was written around the middle of the first century, and it was written by a man who was an eyewitness to the events uh, uh, that are recorded in this book, And it was written during the lifetime of hundreds of eyewitnesses to these events. Matthew, who was also named Levi, was a Jewish tax collector, a publican, who received tolls on that great western road that ran from Damascus through northern Galilee all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Being a tax collector meant that he was sort of an independent contractor. He worked for the Roman Empire, and his business was to collect taxes from the people of Israel. Now, the tax collectors in Israel were hated by the people of Israel. They were not popular. The people of Israel viewed them as traitors. They were sellouts to the Roman Empire. They were selling out the nation of Israel to the Roman Empire. They considered tax collectors to be down among the worst sort of sinners. And when they would refer to them, they would put them in groups with prostitutes and drunkards and thieves. So Matthew was an outcast in Israel. Oh, he was, he was an Israelite. He was Jewish, but he was an outcast in Jewish society. He was not acceptable to the people of Israel. Tax collecting was a very lucrative business, 
as they typically extorted uh, above the amount required by Rome, and then, of course, they would keep the extra for themselves. And as I understand historically, uh, the Roman Empire was aware of this, but they were willing to overlook it as long as those taxes were paid. And if it kept, if it kept things in good order and the money flowing, then they would tend to overlook that. Well, Jesus called Matthew to follow him and made him one of the twelve apostles. And this is the Matthew that wrote this gospel account of Jesus Christ. Now, he wrote this account of Jesus of Nazareth to show him to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and expectations. So the book of Matthew, this gospel of Matthew, it is what we would call a historical narrative and a biography of Jesus Christ. Matthew starts with his birth and he ends with his death and resurrection. Most of the book focuses on the last two years of Jesus' public ministry. And he develops the life of Jesus through the genealogy from Abraham to Joseph, the husband of Mary, with life events that fulfilled Old Testament prophecies, with his many miracles, these signs that he performed, healings, exorcisms, raising of the dead, and also Jesus' teaching, like the Sermon on the Mount and the kingdom parables, the long rebuke of the Pharisees, prophecies in the Olivet Discourse, and so on. So just to give you a simple outline for the book of Matthew, chapters 1 to 4 give you the early life of Jesus up to the beginning of his public ministry. And then chapters 5 to 25, the bulk of this book, give you the last two years of the three-year public ministry of Jesus in, in and around Galilee, mostly in Jerusalem some. Chapters 26 to 28 give you the account of his crucifixion and resurrection. So we are beginning to look here at the Gospel of Matthew we are going to begin looking in verses 1 to 17 that gives the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I want to go ahead and read these verses. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And Judah begat Phares and Zarah of Tamar, and Phares begat Esram, and Esram begat Aram. And Aram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Naasen, and Naasen begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah, and Solomon begat Rehoboam, and Rehoboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa, and Asa begat um, Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat begat um, Yoram, and Yoram begat Ozias. And Uzziah begat um, Jotham, and Jotham begat um, Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manasseh, and Manasseh begat Ammon, and Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat um, Salathiel, and Salathiel begat um, Zerubbabel, 
And Zerubbabel begat Abiud, and Abiud begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor, and Azor begat Sadok, and Sadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliud, and Eliud begat Eleazar, and Eleazar begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So verse 1 immediately tells us how that Matthew starts this gospel account with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And in verse 17 summarizes this genealogy and actually gives the structure for it. And you can see it as you read through the genealogy. So in verses 2 to 6, you have Abraham to David. In verses 7 to 11, you have David to the exile into Babylon. And from verses 12 to 16, you have from the exile in Babylon to Christ. And so that is the structure of this genealogy. This is the way that Matthew presents and tracks this particular genealogy. You notice that he mentions the name Jesus twice in verse 1 and verse 16. The title Christ three times, verses 1, 16, and 17. Now, the name Jesus is the equivalent of Joshua in the Old Testament. It means Savior or Deliverer or the salvation of the Lord, something along that line. Uh, the word Christ means anointed or anointed one. And it is equivalent of the Hebrew word from which we get Messiah. And this, along with the mention of David and Abraham right in the very first verse, shows the connection and the continuation from the Old Testament that Matthew intends to show who the Christ is, how he came into the world, how he fulfilled prophecy, and how he will save his people from their sins. Now, obviously, as you read through um, this account, there's a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce, um, and, and that's very common among genealogies. Now, you have an added difficulty in New Testament genealogies. So in New Testament genealogies, you're getting names of people that have gone from the Hebrew to the Greek to English. And from the Greek to the English, in between there, you've got a strong influence of Latin on these names. And so we get these in forms that some of them you probably don't even recognize. Um, but, But honestly, if you read the Old Testament, most of these names are people that are mentioned. Uh, Some we know a lot of things about, some we know a little bit of things about And Matthew obviously intends to read this gospel along with the Old Testament, referring to all of these names. He doesn't give explanations of of who they are and and what they did. He makes some comments here and there, and we'll talk about that um, in a minute. So these names can be a little bit difficult. Um, Some of the the, uh, more modern translations have actually gone back to consistency with the Old Testament forms in, in the translations so that they're much more recognizable and, and even easier to read, um, honestly. And so that, that, is, that is helpful. Some Bible publishers have actually gone and, and have started um, going back and, and putting those in, in those forms. I, I don't know why uh, they chose the form that they did, but um, anyway, so, so that does make things a little bit difficult, but these are names for the most part that you have encountered if you have read through the Old Testament. Now, before we look at some of the particulars of this genealogy, we do need to think about the purpose of such a genealogy. 
Now, it's easy for us to look, look at a genealogy and we think, well, this is just a list of names, a list of names impossible to pronounce and remember, and you know, I'm never going get, to get all that straight. Um, but it's really more than just a list of names, uh, whether it's here or in the Old Testament. Genealogies in the, in the Bible, they, they function as a literary form. And, and what I mean by that is that they are a form of history, of the telling of history. It is a form that is alternate to what we generally expect, which we call historical narrative, which is just relating the events of, of some historical event or person, or poetry, like what we encounter in the Psalms. And we've, as we've gone through the Psalms, we've seen a number of those that are actually recounting and retelling some history, but doing so in a, in a poetic form. So when you look at a genealogy in the Bible, understand that it's actually just another form of history. It's telling us a story, but it is doing so in in the form of a genealogy. So when we think of it that way, we realize that genealogies then are narrating history to us. And what this does is it shows us, on the one hand, that this is literal, true history. This this is a record of the fulfillment of, of God's promises. This is also preserving the lineal descent of Jesus the Messiah and authenticating him as the son of David. So genealogies are telling a story through records of ancestry. Sometimes when you read through genealogies, you'll notice that generations are skipped. And so the genealogy is not intended to be an exhaustive, complete list from one to the next and one to the next and so on. So sometimes you'll read a genealogy and it'll say son when it's not actually what we would think of as a son, but it is a grandson, or in some cases, a great-grandson. And the point of the genealogy is, is, is not that, oh, well, look, this is, this is incorrect. It calls um, Jechariah the, the son of, of Josiah, and he wasn't Josiah's son. Well, that's not the, the point of the genealogy is to show that descent, show that connection. This, this was his father or grandfather or, or what have you. So, again, we, we have some of, these, some of these features of a genealogy, and they are here in Matthew's as well. Now, Matthew's genealogy deliberately echoes Genesis and the genealogies in Genesis and some other places as well, like First Chronicles and so on. Um, it serves as an introduction or a prologue to Matthew's gospel. In other words, this genealogy sets us up to read and understand the rest of this gospel. What is it that Matthew is writing about? What is it that he has to tell us. Well, we are prepared for that right from the very start with this genealogy. So if you think back to the structure, Abraham, David, exile, Christ, what is that? That's the history of Israel. That is the story of the nation, the people of Israel. Abraham, David, exile, Christ. And that's what Matthew shows right from the from the very start, that this has to do with. So Matthew is placing Christ. He's taking this Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, and is placing him in the ongoing history of Israel. 
and highlighting his work in that history to bring about the fulfillment of God's covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as David. But of course, Christ's work is not entirely limited to Israel, and Matthew brings that out in his gospel and in his genealogy as well. So now let's think a little bit more specifically about this genealogy and what are some of the some of the features of it that we really need to pay attention to. Now again, there's a, a lot of names in, in this genealogy in this list, and it would take a long time to go through and talk about everything that we knew about every one of them, and some we don't know anything about. Um, but I don't, obviously we're not going to do that, but, but the intention is that you know who these people are or that you are reading this especially with the Old Testament so that you will understand who they are and, and what the significance is of their being in this genealogy. Now, the most obvious feature of this genealogy is the structure of it. Uh, again, we mentioned this earlier, verse 17 just lays out this structure, Abraham to David, David to the exile, exile to Christ. And that's the most obvious, most obvious feature of it. So the structure of this genealogy is a framework that sets this genealogy in terms of the history of Israel beginning with Abraham. Now, obviously, you can go back to Genesis and you can read um, descendancy for Abraham back further than just Abraham. You can go all the way back to, to Adam. But that's not the purpose of Matthew's gospel here. So the calling of Abraham... As you recall in Genesis, it follows after the Tower of Babel incident. And it's the Tower of Babel incident is when God divided the languages, he divided the nations, he distributed the nations throughout the earth. And so Genesis gives us that table of nations, those 70 nations, and then God calls Abraham out of his native nation and promises to make of him a new nation through whom he would bless all the nations of the earth which includes the 70, as well as the many other nations that would descend from Abraham as well. David, on the other hand, he was the anointed king from the tribe of Judah, whom God chose to establish a kingly line and from whom the Messiah, the greater David, would be born. So this promised son of David, would restore Israel, would establish the kingdom in the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and give Israel peace and rest in the land, and all those blessings that are prophesied. The exile was the fulfillment of prophecy, beginning with Moses, going all the way back to the first books of the Old Testament. That prophecy that Israel, when they came into the land, would break God's covenant and that they would end up being scattered from off the land, scattered among the nations of the earth. And they would remain such until such time as God would send the Messiah, who would gather them as a shepherd gathers his sheep and restore them to the nation and to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, that's the structure. That's, that's the story that, that Matthew is drawing on and, and, and is calling to mind as we begin to read this gospel account. Now, secondly, thinking about the, the features of this genealogy, we know that it's more than merely a family record list. And one of the ways that we know that is the use of annotations. Annotations are simply comments by the author, 
things that are inserted into this list that aren't necessarily needed in a if you're just giving a father to son genealogy then then these are comments that aren't really needed in order to accomplish that and really don't don't add much of anything to that unless there would be some confusion and they would be needed for identification but that's certainly not the case as you read this so these authorial comments highlight to us that narrative function of the genealogy in other words it's it's telling us this story so there actually are seven annotations in this genealogy the first is in verse two um, speaking about judah and this this is the annotation and his brethren now the line of descent is going through judah it's not going through his brothers but it mentions judah and his brothers Jacob, he begat Judah and his brothers. The next is in verse 3, when we are told that Judah begat Phares and, and Sarah of Tamar. Of Tamar. In verse 5, the next is um, here given to us, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, of or by Ruth. Verse 6, um, David the king begat Solomon. And this is the annotation of her that had been the wife of Uriah. Verse 11 is the next annotation. And it tells us that Josias beget Jeconias and his brethren. And then the last one is in verse number 16, where we're told that Jacob beget Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So the husband of Mary. So if you take these annotations in this genealogy, you realize pretty quickly that you can put them into two groups. So you have these annotations that form two groups, both of Judah and Jeconiah. There's an annotation included that says, and their brothers, and their brothers. That obviously puts them in group number one. The next group that you can put together out of these annotations is the fact that there are five women that are named in this genealogy. Now, every record of a birth does not include the name of the mother, but in five cases, a woman is named who is the mother. So obviously that puts them in a group. So we have two different groups that we need to look at and and really focus on to understand the purpose of this genealogy. We need to know What connects these within these groups? What connects Judah and Jeconiah? What connects the five women um, that are mentioned? And how does that contribute to Matthew's purpose in this genealogy and gospel? All right, so let's start with group number one, the mention of the brothers. This occurs in verse 2, and it occurs again in verse number 11. The same comment that's made about Judah is made about Jeconiah and their brothers. So, Out of all the sons of Jacob, Judah alone is mentioned. Now, on the one hand, that makes sense because his is the line of descent. Through through Judah was born David and ultimately the Christ. So on one hand, that makes sense. Judah's line is the line of the promised Messiah, the one referred to as Shiloh in the prophecy in Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. He's going to come of Judah. So this line of the Messiah, this line of kingship in Israel, 
is prophesied by Jacob um, on Judah in in Genesis chapter 49 um, before he died. And it's promised there that Judah is going to rule over his brothers. So again, this obviously has to do with kingship. And the mention of Judah and his brothers brings to mind the 12 tribes of Israel and the reign of the tribe of Judah over all of the other tribes. Well, by that time in Genesis, by the time you get to Genesis 49, and we recently went through Genesis and studied it, and by the, t- by the time you get to Genesis 49, Judah has emerged as a converted and faithful character. And we talked about that when we were going through the book of Genesis. Now, the last third of Genesis is usually thought of as being the story of Joseph. And, and the story of Joseph is certainly... Um, very uh, prominent in that last part of Genesis. But we also saw in our recent study through Genesis how how that, that is also the story of Judah that is interweaved with Joseph in the last part of that book. And so the importance for the future of the 12 tribes of Israel is given through Joseph and Judah, actually, in the last part of Genesis. And it's through Judah that the Messiah would come and that Israel would be saved. This reference to Judah and his brothers, obviously it invokes um, Israel and invokes the idea of the the kingship of Israel and the tribes of Israel and the the ruling over those brothers. Well, that brings us down to Jeconiah, though. In verse number 11, Josiah begat Jeconiah and his brethren. Now, Jeconiah was a king of Judah who's also called Jehoiachin, um, and that is in Second Kings chapters 24 and 25, um, Second Chronicles chapter 36, you can read about him. And verse 11 says he was the son of Josiah, but he, wasn't, he was actually Josiah's grandson. Um, Josiah had, had sons that were mentioned, Jehoaz, um, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And all of them were kings of Judah at different points. Jehoiakim was actually the father of Jehoiachin, um, and Jehoiakim reigned during the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Now, it, it's easy to, to look at that character um, uh, that's called Jeconiah here to, to see him and the problems that he had, which, of which there were many. But he did actually follow the command that God gave many of Israel, which did not. God gave this command through Jeremiah that they were to surrender to the Babylonians. And Jeconiah actually followed that command. He was taken into captivity. He's taken away to Babylon um, with his house. And, and he was treated pretty well. Now, Zedekiah was technically the last king of Judah, but not a faithful character. So Judah and his brothers to Jeconiah and his brothers covers the history of the 12 tribes of Israel and the kingship of the nation beginning to end. And of course, now they are abiding many days without a king. Well, that brings us to group two of the annotations then. The women. Five women are named in this genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, although Bathsheba is actually not named, but her husband Uriah is named. There certainly has to be some significance there. That seems rather unusual because Uriah has nothing to do with the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the sense that that there's no descent from him. Well, these women, these five women that are mentioned in this genealogy have, have 
received a lot of attention historically. There have been a lot of different attempts to explain the significance of these women here, and they're, they, they are very diverse ideas. Um, if you probably narrow it down to some of the most common reasons that are given for these five women in, in the genealogy, one is, is that there must be something in, in common. There must be something common about these women. And so w- one idea is that, well, they were all sinners. And uh, certainly we could look at some and look into their uh, background and, and see some legitimacy to that. With others, it, it's, the explanations I've read are quite a stretch um, to try to, to make them all fit. Another explanation is that, well, they're all, they're all Gentiles. Of course, then you have to kind of just drop Mary off that list, and really you have to drop Bathsheba off that list as well, and you're only given three out of the five that were actually Gentiles. Another idea is that, well, each of these women had children, and there was some sort of irregularities there, some sort of irregularities about the, the relationship or irregularities about the birth. Now, all of those views... I think, do have something beneficial to them. But, but what is the final picture to pull all that together? Well, Matthew, as we read this genealogy, I do believe that Matthew intended a positive emphasis in this genealogy. When he, even when he mentioned Judah and, and Jeconiah, and again, if you look at Judah's backstory, it, it's, it's, it's rather bleak. But as you go through Genesis, there's, there's a definite change. There's a definite conversion to Judah. And Judah becomes a praiseworthy character, a, a, a faithful character. Jeconiah, again, we can find things to blame about Jeconiah, but we can also find things to praise. And there were some things in which he was faithful. And that's also the case with the women. I mean, think about um, some of these women. They certainly had shameful acts in, in their backstories, but but that doesn't really pay attention to the positive presentation of them as faithful converts, just like Rahab. Uh, Hebrews eleven thirty one says that she acted by faith when she hid the spies from Israel, and she's praised for this, and so on. So I don't think that the purpose that Matthew has in his genealogy is to sort of give us a salacious backstory and say, look, God can take all this mess and he can make something good out of it. As, as well as that might sound, I do think that Matthew's intention here is actually positive. Now, the truth of the matter is, when you're looking at these women, um, yes, they, they were all sinners, technically, but not certainly of the, of the same degree in their history. But is it their history that Matthew's pointing to? I don't think so, as much as the positive aspects of them. And they weren't all Gentiles. But the Gentile connection is something that is certainly highlighted. And especially when you look at verse 6 where Bathsheba, who was a Jewish woman, is not actually named, but her Gentile husband, Uriah the Hittite, is named. Well, Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of the Giborim. Uriah was a convert to Israel's God, one who portrayed faithfulness to God, to David and Israel, when many in Israel, including David himself, were not. Uriah is certainly presented as nothing but a faithful and a positive character. Well, when you think about Matthew and his own backstory, he was an outcast in Israel. He was not one of 
those that was in sort of the, the inner ring and the inner um, sanctum of, of the society of, of Israel. And when you go through Matthew's gospel, one of the interesting things is that he actually generally portrays Gentiles in a positive light. And it's certainly not something that you would expect in, in a gospel so concerned about Israel and Israel's history written uh, by a Jew that typically had hatred for Gentiles, for the nations that were not Jewish. But think about the way that Matthew portrays the Magi or the Queen of the South or the Ninevites or the Canaanite woman or the centurion. He generally presents Gentiles in a positive light. So I do believe that the positive is what Matthew intends in this genealogy. And through that, he's showing the mission of Christ as the Savior of the world, the nations, and not just Israel. Yes, he has specific and special significance to Israel, but he's not just the Savior of Israel. Well, the other aspect of these women in this genealogy would be the irregularities in their relationships and births and that certain there, there certainly is, that is present there are certainly irregularities but when you think about that when you think about those irregularities in back in in the old testament and, and leading up really where does all that culminate all that culminates in the birth of jesus christ born to the virgin mary which is the fulfillment of the figures of unusual and miraculous births in the Old Testament and even specific prophecy. So all of this highlights the work of God in history to save his people, Israel, and through them, the nations of the earth. And this birth of Jesus is that key signal event for the fulfillment of these and the news that Matthew has to communicate. So it's of utmost importance in reading a genealogy like this to understand that Matthew is telling us that 2,000 years ago, the promised and long-awaited Messiah came into the world. And this, of course, is the ultimate verification of the Bible. Jesus really was born of the line of David, and he lived and he died. He was resurrected just like he was prophesied to do in the Old Testament, and all these eyewitnesses attest to. That also means that all the rest of the promises will be fulfilled just as physically, just as tangibly, just as, as in a real way as those that have already been fulfilled such as the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who grew up in the house of Joseph and Mary. So as we start this study of Matthew's gospel, the word gospel, of course, means good news. And it's called a gospel because it's the good news of Jesus Christ. So here in Matthew's gospel, you will meet the man. You will meet the Son of God who came into the world to save sinners. You will hear him teaching, giving teaching from the Old Testament that had already been given, giving teaching from God that God had given him to give to uh, us. You will see the sign miracles that he performed that confirmed his identity and purpose. And amidst all the power and all the wonders, 
Don't miss this event and what it means. Yes, Jesus has the power to heal. Yes, Jesus has the power to command the wind and the sea. Yes, Jesus has the power to raise the dead. But Jesus also has the power to forgive sins. Jesus has the power to save your soul from hell. And what did he say? He said to repent of sins and to believe the gospel. And all those that believe in him will never perish but have everlasting life. Thank you.